0: And Defence Minister Peter Dutton's being called reckless and desperate for his anti-China rhetoric, which he ramped up again last week. He said China had made a decision about who they're going to back in the next federal election. Uh, At the end of last year, the same minister was criticised for saying dark clouds were forming in the region and countries would be foolish to repeat the mistakes of the 1930s. He also recently called Vladimir Putin an ageing dictator. Writer Jeff Sparrows on the phone and uh, good morning, Jeff.
2: Good morning, Happy Valentine's Day, crew. How are you doing? Yeah, Should
0: great. Right back out to Jeff. Yeah, feeling like full of <laughs> feel like full of love and romance.
2: <laughs> well, I was thinking yeah, about that when you're introducing. Um Listening. One of my favourite newspaper headlines of all time was when um, Kelly Dutton, Peter Dutton's wife, was in the Daily Telegraph with a headline, My Pete's no monster. <laughs> <laughs> That's a
1: ring re- endorsement, isn't it? <laughs> <Peter
2: Dutton. laughs> so nothing can be more romantic than that, if it, except perhaps um, ScoMo's wife on um, 60 Minutes last night explaining that her husband wasn't
1: a psycho. <laughs> That's right. I know. It's, it's beautiful. It just, it's, it's very touching.
0: Uh, well, the Prime Minister didn't have the best week politically last week. Um, so many what, what do you had... mean? He was playing the ukulele. That's
2: I know. And,
0: now. and people were sending mean t- text messages or um, well, they emerged at least. People crossed the floor against him. Yeah, he was playing the ukulele.
1: Having a great old time. Seeing...
0: <laughs> um, I mean, in his context, what purpose does Peter Dutton's anti-China and Russia rhetoric play, do you think, Jeff?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you can see this in terms of um, Dutton's efforts to return uh, the Liberals in the next election. But of course, you can also see it in terms of Peter Dutton's own efforts to install Peter Dutton in the lot. Because of course, he was the initial challenger Um, to Malcolm Turnbull um, at the last spill. And you'll recall that he launched his challenge thinking that he had ScoMo's backing before uh, ScoMo suddenly revealed that he was going to uh, run himself. So we know Dutton has leadership ambitions and has had so for a long time. We also have a fairly clear sense that uh, there's no love lost even on Valentine's Day, between Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison himself. And if you kind of think of um, the credentials that Peter Dutton might offer to you know, put himself forward as a potential challenger, well, really, if you read the kind of people who back him, so Andrew Bolt is a big Peter Dutton um, backer, Peter, Peter Credlin as, as well, the, the things they put forward are intensified culture war, um, or national security. And I don't think there's very much appetite for more cultural war right at the moment, but uh, intensified um, hysteria about uh, national security seems like the best bet going. And, um, you know, that's what Dutton's been playing to the hilt, hasn't he? Like, um, you know, saying in parliament that uh, China wanted Labor to win the election, saying that, you know, that we're in a situation like the 1930s. I think all of this has to be seen in the context. Um, Both of the election but also Dutton's manoeuvrings within the
1: Liberal Party. Yeah, and, and interesting too, you know, Bob Carr's allegation on, on Twitter that it was Dutton who who leaked those text messages about calling um, ScoMo a, a psycho as well, which which Dutton, you know, said, said wasn't him, but, but that was kind of an interesting intervention as, as well. I'm not really sure what to make of that. But do you have much of a sense that This kind of national security rhetoric, you know, particularly anti-China and and I suppose, you know, Dutton in particular would be watching carefully what happens, um, you know, on the the Russia-Ukraine border as well. And and we know that politics often, you know, can can accompany and and influence the kind of military action in these kinds of situations as well. But do do you think national security does play well with with the electorate, this kind of, you know, strongman tactics, um, you know, speaking tough to China?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, remember last time Dutton was really making play with stuff was around the so-called African gangs, um, you know, scare um, some time ago. And that clearly did have a resonance amongst uh, some voters. But I don't know about the China stuff at the moment. It seems to me, you know, every poll that you see... um, Talking about the prospects of, say, a conflict with China shows that you know Australians as a whole are very you know um, reluctant to get embroiled in you know an intensified new Cold War. Of course, that might change if the the um, political temperature the world over heats up a bit, and that's why I think even in terms of domestic politics, the crisis in Ukraine is really important. So one of the strange things about the um, The situation there is that the Americans are much more bellicose um, and over the top about the situation than the Ukrainians are themselves. So, you know, President Zelensky has recently been saying um, uh, uh, decrying the atmosphere of panic that's been created by the Americans and demanding to see what information they have to suggest that an invasion is imminent. Now, I don't know whether it is or, or not, but why are the Americans so concerned about the situation in the Ukraine, which is um, obviously a long way away from America. I'd suggest that the real issue for them um, isn't the invasion of Ukraine, but the potential invasion of Taiwan by China. And so the situation in Ukraine is particularly significant because it's an opportunity to assert... um, uh, hegemonic power as a superpower, and if the Americans are seen not to be able to control the Russians in that part of the world, I think the fear is that it will be much, much harder for them to assert the will against um, China. And I think that, that I mean, Dutton was pretty much saying that um, in the papers this morning as part of his attack on the Labor Party. He was saying, well, you know, we seeing now this. This this situation in Ukraine, there's a potential for uh, China to be emboldened by this. That's why, you know, it's really important to to vote for the Liberal Party. So if the situation in Ukraine becomes a hot war rather than a cold war, well, gosh, I then the bets are kind of off, don't you think? I mean, I think in a situation like that, a rhetoric around national security might actually fly for the liberals, whereas I think at the moment the Dutton-style attacks kind of come across as sort of desperate. You know, no one really thinks that you know Anthony Albanese is a Chinese spy or whatever the insinuations are.
0: Yeah, I wonder, I mean, what sort of, if it was to play in their favour in some change in circumstances, Jeff, I mean, what credentials does this particular federal government bring to uh, international um, diplomacy? Or, I mean, we've got the example of the, the French sub thing. We've got the, um, the example of the um, evacuation from Afghanistan to go on in more recent times. I mean, do they have strong credentials in that? in that space?
2: Well, if you were Dutton, you might well be calculating that in fact, Morrison is seen as a bumbler on the world stage. And so in an atmosphere of intensified international crisis, if you were Dutton, you might think this would be your chance to assert yourself as the strong man that Australia led. Now this is all speculation, right? And Mm. I don't really think this is on the cards, but, I also think there's a possibility that Dutton has an eye not so much on the election, but on what happens after the election. I mean, if you remember Tony Abbott, after he got rolled by Morrison, despite making the pledge of you know, no sniping and um, no attacking from the, from the sidelines, spent the rest of his time um, doing whatever he can, whatever he would to bring the government down, I wouldn't rule it. Out that Dutton is currently making a similar calculation, having decided that in fact uh, the Liberals are quite likely to lose the next election, and are uh, doing what he can to twist the knife inside um, in the back of um, Scott Morrison, a man whom he clearly hates and despises.
1: Yeah, I've heard, so, a lot you know, of, heard a lot of twisting the knives in, into the former prime ministers as well, haven't we? <laughs> Over the years, become very familiar <laughs> with that. <laughs> Australian sport. That's right. Speaking with um, Dr. Jeff Sparrow, lecturer at the Centre for Advancing Journalism and of course um, over at the University of Melbourne and um, Triple R, as alumni, among many other things. And, and I mean this kind of suggestion that, that the ALP is sort of weak on national security, weak on China and, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, d- do you detect much of a tangible difference between the foreign policy of the, the current government, the coalition government and what Labour is putting forward ahead of an election sometime in the next few months?
0: No,
2: no. I mean, and that's a really interesting point as as well. I mean, we've talked about this before on this show, that, that China is going to be a dominating view for both parties for the foreseeable future, partly but largely because it's so incredibly difficult for them both two resolve. On the one hand, both parties are conscious. They see Australia's national interest as very closely entwined with the US strategic alliance in um, in, in the region. And they are both incredibly worried that, um, you know, the Americans are not spending enough resources in the Asia Pacific. I mean, there's, there's a current of thought, for instance, in the Wall Street Journal is saying this to today that America's involvement in Ukraine is a distraction from the militarism they really should be encouraging, which is in the Asia-Pacific region. I would not be surprised if there's a certain sense of that in the, in the corridors of power in, in, in Australia. So, so that's part of it. But of course, Australia also relates to China as its biggest trading par- partner, both for uh, you know, um, resources, but things like overseas students, mm-hmm. tourism, all kinds of things. So it's a very, very difficult issue for both the parties to um, negotiate it. And both parties have different wings that have contradic- that have um, different attitudes. So I think it's going to continue to arise as something causing problems for both leaders. Because in, in, in a way, it's really an unresolvable um, contradiction. There's, you know, John Howard used to say, well, we don't have to choose between the United States and China, but increasingly both China and the United States are saying, well actually you do have to choose and which one is it going to be and I don't think any of the politicians really have an answer to that and so I think the question will just keep coming up again and again in different ways throughout the political debate.
0: Yeah and it's interesting, I mean I was flicking through a newspaper today and while some of the articles were around Ukraine and and the the, the kind of comments that, that Peter Dutton and others have been saying and the other was trying to get Chinese tourist dollar to Australia, trade relations, student numbers, things like that. And particularly with regards to tourism, it was quite interesting. It wasn't so much around the anti-China rhetoric in our politics, was around the COVID threat to their to their health, and I thought that was quite interesting that in amongst all this, do you think that the the pandemic itself might loom less large in an election, um, if this is where the focus goes, Jeff, with reporting to, to these kinds of um, debates and issues and discussions?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you put your finger on it, Kelly. in terms of what a complicated and difficult issue this is because of course well I mean partly if you're a Chinese tourist you're you're, you're conscious that China has so far managed to keep over out more or less entirely and you know so there's a concern Even if you come to a country like australia you may not be able to, you know come back or you may be you know stuck in quarantine for a long time but of course as well as the the strategic conflicts between um, uh, the United states and and China which is Is caught up. Australia also has a long history of domestic anti-Chinese sentiment, stretching Mm. back to the the days of the the Yellow Peril, which is separate from that strategic issue, but is obviously related to it. So every time there is this saber rattling by someone like Dutton talking about, you know, um, sinister foreign governments pulling the strings or whatever, I would expect that you would see an an uptick in that kind of anti-Chinese. Racism because, you know, like it plays into all those old tropes of, you know, sinister, you know, Chinese manipulators pulling the strings or or whatever. So it's a very, very complicated um, situation. And, you know, one thing I think that we need is we need to actually have an Honest and open discussion about the China issue and the threat of war that goes beyond the strategic priorities of politicians that actually begins to take in the public as a whole. So people. Themselves can be involved in this debate and, and realize what's at stake, and start to say, well, "What would we like to see happen in the Asia Pacific? Not just what you know what the foreign policy mandarins would like to see happen."
0: Yeah, I realize that I um, often will switch channels if I'm watching telly and I've got kids around. And I see like fighter jets on and build up, and uh, mm. it's just a lot at the moment. Um, I I can't get enough of you, Jeff, and I will be tuning in on Wednesday night to an event that you're um, in conversation with Tony Birch tell other people about it because i think it's flipped online now
2: yeah so it's a, a thing at readings that tony and i are doing um about my climate change book um change nature. it was going to be in store but it was i think readings is starting to open up now but when we were it was still online so it will be on the dreaded zoom but that does mean that um everyone uh can come so six thirty, and you can just book through the readings website and um it would be lovely to see some triple R
0: listeners there, even if only virtually. Yeah. Sure to be free. a great chat. Yeah, I know, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Um, catch you on Wednesday, Jeff. Yeah, cool. Catch catch you thanks, Eve. thanks Jeff. See ya. Bye. Uh, Jeff Sparrow, author and journalism, academic Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
1: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
0: And electricity is not only an essential service, it's increasingly our ticket to a net zero future. Electrifying everything, so long as it's renewable electricity, that is, is how we're going to achieve massive emission cuts. And we can all help a little with this transition through our choice of power company. And Greenpeace has released its latest green electricity guide. Hannah Maclay is here to tell us um, who comes on top of the table and other stuff. And it's great to have you with us, Hannah. Good morning. Hi, Helen and Carly. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. No worries. And, I mean, before we reveal or you reveal who the greenest companies are by your measure, um, what do you factor into your assessments and and what providers um, did you choose to assess for this um, green electricity guide? Yes.
3: Our Electricity Guide is a really easy-to-use website that ranks Australia's electricity providers from the most screen to the least screen. Um, we know that choosing an environmentally friendly electricity provider can be really confusing for consumers, so we wanted to take all of the hard work out of that um, by doing all the research for people. So what we've done is we've ranked... Um, the large majority of of electricity providers in Australia um, using uh, a number of different criteria. So we put a lot of thought into the criteria that we'd use as part of this guide, and that includes whether they're providing clean, renewable energy to their customers, whether they've committed to ending coal use by 2030, whether they've committed to halting any new fossil fuel expansion, their support for new renewable energy, how transparent their marketing is, and whether they're causing pollution or environmental
1: harm. And on that question of of transparency, I mean, how easy is it to get this information out of power companies?
3: Yeah, so we know that that is part of the reason that choosing an environmentally friendly electricity provider can be so confusing for customers because a lot of providers really aren't that transparent about where their electricity comes from and they like to pretend that they're a lot greener than they actually are. Um, So we've looked in a lot of detail around things like the emissions intensity of the electricity that they're providing, what their climate policies are, um, and these are things that for your average consumer can be quite hard to find and we wanted to do all of that research for people just to make it as easy as possible to see watch electricity companies are greenwashing and pretending that they've got great environmental credentials when really they're just still burning coal. And watch electricity providers really are as green as they say they are.
0: Yeah, and I mean, on that, um, one thing one thing that occurred to me when reading through the report and, and having a look at the rankings, um, this popped into my mind, so indulge me for a second. If uh-huh. I buy green power, so this is like the... Um, you know, official product, green power product. Mm -hmm. If I buy a green power product from a company that ranks lower on the table or your ranking table in the report, is that better or worse than not buying green power from a company that ranks higher on your report? Because um, it seems to be different. It's not just the renewable energy that's being assessed here. It seems that there's a whole kind of company values and approach that's being considered um, in your green electricity guide.
3: Yeah, and that's a really um, that's a really interesting question, and I think it's a question that a lot of consumers are asking as well. Um, we're focused on companies that have overall really good green credentials, um, and that are really focused on bringing more new renewable energy into Australia's electricity grid. There are a lot of power companies that offer green power um, that are still burning coal, and we want consumers to be choosing electricity providers that instead of. Burning coal, uh, you know, bringing more new renewable energy into the grid, and we think that's the way that consumers are able to have the most impact. Um, so, whilst you know, Green Power is an excellent program, it's um, yeah, it, people should really be choosing electricity providers that. Overall, has really great green
1: credentials. Yeah, that's that's a really um, sort of interesting explanation because it's it's I've recently gone through the process of, of deciding a new um, a new energy retailer to go with, and, and that was a, a question that was very much at the forefront of, of my mind because a, a reality mm-hmm. for a lot of people as well is is of course price, and and there might be uh-huh. you know many people out there who want to want to make the best choice possible, but also you know might have um, have sort of budget constraints as well. Did that sort of mm-hmm. did, did price factor into this? At all, or is it, is it purely just based on the green credentials of, of uh, energy retailers?
3: Yeah, so taking, I guess, taking a single snapshot of electricity prices can be quite complex and it, you know, it depends on the state that you're with and all that kind of thing. Um, so pricing hasn't factored into our rankings, but what I can tell you is that the families that we've worked with to switch to green electricity providers have been really pleased with the bill estimates that are being provided. And as the world moves more towards renewable energy, the cost of going green is only going to get cheaper and cheaper, whereas the cost of fossil fuels will just keep going up. So it's a really great time to move to renewable energy.
0: Okay so and I mean I was I was also interested because with the I've always used that Victoria Price Compare website you know the Victorian government mm-hmm. energy compare website to have a look at the kind of deals on offer for exactly the same reason is this motivation is like there's so many offers out there and so many different deals out there. Um, can I get a better deal by by swapping? So would you mm-hmm. say to use those two interchangeably if people did have price points and they were looking, I want a green provider, but I also need to consider the price. Would you use them yeah. interchangeably, like the two kind of ranking guides, I guess? Yeah, I think so great idea i think if so long as
3: consumers are choosing an electricity provider that ranks near the top of our guide you know there's a, there's a broad range of electricity providers that are really creating and that are bringing more renewable energy into australia um so we definitely recommend that they shop around have a look at who those top providers are and then they can reach out to the electricity companies or look at other um, comparison websites to um yeah, to make a decision on cost as well
1: We're speaking with Hannah McClay, she's with Greenpeace and talking about the the recent launch of the Green Electricity Guide. It's been, I think, four years um, between Green Electricity Guides and and this um, involves ranking the different energy retailers in Australia based on their green credentials. Um, All right, drumroll, take us through who who sort of came out towards the top of your ranking, Hannah. Yeah,
3: sure. So we had... We had a number of electricity providers at the top of our rankings this year, which was really exciting. Sitting at the top of the rankings we had Innova Energy and Diamond Energy. So Diamond Energy is a electricity company that generates um, renewable energy. Anova Energy is another electricity company that gives 50% of their profits back to the community and they also source their electricity from customer-distributed solar panels from their customers and from Diamond Energy. Um, sitting underneath them, we had a number of other four- to five-star Ranked electricity providers who are also really great options for people to choose from. So I'd recommend that people go in and have a look at what those top ranked providers are um, and make a decision sort of, uh, yeah, make a decision about which electricity provider is best for them. What the Green Electricity Guide really highlighted this year is that there is a big gap between the electricity providers that are really legitimate on climate and electricity providers that are holding Australia back. Um, And we saw at the bottom of the electricity. Green Electricity Guide, we have providers like AGL, who's Australia's biggest climate polluter. They scored just one star out of five, and they're really still relying on coal. Joining them in the bottom with other large electricity providers like Origin and Energy Australia, who instead of investing in clean, green, renewable energy, they're still investing in things like um, their coal power stations and in gas. We really need these companies at the bottom of the rankings to start doing the right thing and to commit to going 100% renewable by 2030. But while they refuse to, we recommend that their customers do consider switching to a company that's doing the right thing. It's such a quick and easy change that it can make an absolutely massive impact.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of the bottom-ranking companies are what, what they call gen tailors, like generators, as mm-hmm. well as retailers. Whereas the top-ranking are more in the retailer space. Um, but you know, um, interestingly, there were a lot of um, consumer concern around the changing of hands of Powershop. So Shell bought Powershop, mm-hmm. but PowerShop's still in the top ten of your ranking. And I'd be, I, I think, for those six thousand, or I think six thousand people change companies. For those that that haven't done that um, I think that's a good news story is it so, yeah, so the acquisition
3: of um, PowerShot by Shell had definitely had a big impact on their rankings. It moved them from first place in our last green electricity guide down to 10th. Um, the, the acquisition at this stage has only just been completed, um, but the good news is that PowerShot is still sourcing a lot of its electricity from its previous owner, Meridian, who do generate renewable electricity. Um, what we do need to reflect, however, is the fact that Shell is one of the world's biggest climate polluters whose mining of fossil fuels is having a really devastating impact on the environment and on climate change and like you mentioned we can see you know from this huge number of providers that have switched away from power shop that customers do really care about that um, and yet yeah, that's definitely being reflected in their drop in the rankings this year
1: and i'm interested in in the, the change between 2018 and and this latest green electricity guide you've, you've put out because that power shop um, case really sort of underscores how there often is change in, in, in this space with mm-hmm. with you know larger companies buying out others and, and to some extent that can be explained by the the desire from um, from you know, larger companies to to invest in renewable energy as well, which which is a positive thing but but do you anticipate going forward that that this will be more a trend that we'll see these kinds of acquisitions and, and greater complexity i suppose around the, the green credentials of of certain providers? Um, who, who might have some kind of partnership with those who have historically been more polluting?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. What we can definitely see is that the electricity space is moving really, really quickly. It's changing all the time, um, and that's reflecting, I think, consumers' concerns around climate change and consumers' concerns around you know choosing electricity providers that are cleaner and greener and that are, you know, helping to combat climate change rather than making it worse. And we know that, you know, there is a bit of a race to the top at the moment. There is a group of electricity providers that are really clean and green and that are doing a lot to, um, yeah, a lot for climate policy and a lot to, you know, bring more renewable energy into Australia. I think it'll be interesting to see sort of the next, over the next few years, how that goes um, and whether some of the electricity providers at the bottom do make significant changes to bring themselves further up the rankings, I think hopefully electricity companies will start to see that, you know, unless they start to go cleaner and greener, um, they're going to start losing customers.
0: Yeah, and that, and that, I mean, just, I guess, a, a thought on that. So as companies do um, do things like buy a power shop to potentially improve their, you know, portfolio of interests, like say a shell, Mm -hmm. um, if customers switch away from them as they make – switch away from from PowerShop as they make those sorts of initiatives – is that encouraging more change or or not? Like, I I guess that's also something I know people have spoken to me about, going, maybe I should stay with them if Shell's improving what they're doing, but then they're, they're, in their heart, they're like, actually, um, I want to switch away because I'm not comfortable with that. So, I mean, what what would you suggest people think about with regards to helping or supporting or in some way moving their money where the change, uh, where they want to see the change happen?
3: Yeah, I think that... Look, you can see from our rankings that you know, Power Shop has definitely dropped in the rankings and there are other electricity providers that are sitting higher above them. I think what the Power Shop acquisition showed is that people do really care about where their electricity is coming from. And I think the huge amount of people that have moved away from PowerShop have really shown other electricity companies that they, they need to get serious about tackling climate change and they need to get serious about having better climate policies. Um, so I think that it would be, yeah, people should go and have a look at the Green Electricity Guide and sort of have a look through the rankings and we'll see which electricity providers
0: are at the top and then make a decision um, based on that. Thanks so much for being with us today, Hannah. <clears throat> Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Hannah McClea, uh she's with Greenpeace. They've just put out the Green Electricity Guide and a couple of suggestions there um, that Green power versus a high ranking company, they'd go with a high ranking company in their guide. And if you want to have a look at price points that to use the Victorian Government Energy Compare site, but then also have a look at who's at the top of their guide. It's very um,
1: easy to change providers as well, which is something that um. It's so much easier than recently. it ever was. Yeah.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.
0: With sport back in earnest at the community and professional level, we wanted to hear more about a new project, Proud to Play, is running. Um, Proud to Play is an organisation that focuses on increasing LGBTIQ plus engagement in sport, exercise and active recreation. And Dr. Ryan Storr is with Swinburne University and co-founder of Proud to Play. And Ryan, it's great to have you with us. And um, you've just kicked off a new project with Vic Sport, I hear, called uh, Rainbow Roadmap. Tell us more about it.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so the Rainbow Roadmap is a new initiative um, off the back of some research that I've been doing over the last couple of years and work that we've done with sports. Um, there's been a lot of things in the media recently with the um, Pride rounds and things like that, and there was a recent AFLW player who kind of opted out of it, and then it had broader conversations about Pride in general. But the Roadmap basically is a five-step journey for sports organizations to become rainbow ready and to engage in LGBT inclusion Um, so it's kind of like a hand holding process they start with the first phase of like um, an assessment seeing where they're at what they need to do and then they go all the way through to hopefully become rainbow ready by actually engaging with LGBT inclusion so it's kind of like proactive steps of actually doing the work um, rather than maybe just putting some social media posts out and marching maybe in or Pride and things like that that it's actually kind of the work behind the scenes and that, that needs to go on from policies, practices, programs, trying to change a culture. So it's a big project.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and based on the previous research you've done, what, what do we know about how community sports organisations traditionally have or, or you know, currently engage with diversity and inclusion, particularly as regards the LGBTQIA plus community?
4: Yeah. So, um, good question that I'm definitely qualified to answer because I did my PhD on on this. Brilliant. We're speaking with the right person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And basically what what I find, as some of my um, colleagues found, is that generally community sport clubs, um, diversity inclusion is done haphazardly and it's done kind of in an ad hoc way and ultimately volunteers who run the clubs don't actually know how to engage with it. Um, it can be very complex, it can be challenging in terms of working with some communities when you know nothing about them. Um, and one of the things that we found and what actually helped start Proud to Play was that, unfortunately, in terms of... in all aspects of diversity and inclusion, um, LGBTIQ plus inclusion, was just not getting done, um, it seems too difficult, too hard. We don't know how to have conversations. We don't have any gay players, all those types of things. But then homophobia was obviously very and still is very um, common. So um, it's kind of as well to, to help them because many of the, the people who run these clubs, they actually do want to do the right thing. Um, they believe in diversity. They believe in um, equal opportunities for everyone to play, etc. They just need a little bit of help, and that's a similar thing with the sports in general. Um, it's a kind of neglected area of um, diverse inclusion. So Proud to Play, we're specifically really are there to help people because they, they don't know how to do it, and they do struggle with this type of inclusion. Um, so we're partnering on this particular project to kind of just make it really easy for them to actually start to do this work and dip their toe in the water because unfortunately, especially with the Pride rounds and stuff, many sports might do a little bit and then suddenly there's a lot of resistance and backlash from um, people online and basically overt homophobia and then they don't know what to do about it. They get a bit scared so then they kind of retreat.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I mean, some of what you just said there really goes to my next question is around barriers because, you know, from reading um, some of the materials on the Proud to Play website that you've found that, you know, many clubs and sporting groups are lagging the broader community in, in, in some ways when it comes to inclusion. And you've listed some of the reasons why that might be. And yet, you know, you do find goodwill there. So, being approachable and and creating these kinds of programs, um, is that a a huge, you know, is that likely to get some inroads with with groups where you do find there is a willingness and just perhaps ignorance or just uncertainty or something preventing them from, from doing more for their community than they currently are?
4: Yeah, and look, my research with administrators in this space over the last five years, and I've spoken to a lot of administrators, um, generally they don't, they have a very low level of education and awareness around LGBTI inclusion, so they might not have any LGBT colleagues or friends, um, and they kind of just struggle with how to go about it. So if they do need to engage in this area, what, what's the first step? how do they engage with lgbt communities like how do they reach them um, so we kind of just present it all in a very kind of streamlined way um, and it's been picked up and received well in the sense of um, many of the sports can see the outcomes they know what needs to be done and we've been working with several sports over the last couple of months and it's been um, it's been a really good process, and I think it's um, it's been good to see the sports take it up and kind of realise, actually, it's not as maybe challenging or difficult um, that they, they first realised. But I think the education one is a big one. Um, there's just a lack of education around this particular area and topic, um, and especially when it is in the media. Um, it's always negative stories and homophobia and things like that. So it's good to kind of also we use... Um, positive stories and we try and think about like the business case for this as well in terms of like you're trying to attract new fans new customers you're going to have people maybe posting about it on social media if you go to um, a game and things like that so it's very much as well thinking about how it can benefit their business as well as obviously um helping lgbt people with um discrimination and challenges they might have in these spaces
1: yeah, and I mean, obviously, sort of, you know, your, your main research and focus, I, I suppose, is on community sports groups, you know, clubs and, and, and organisations, but do you have much of a sense of how much impact change in those larger leagues makes, um, you know, volunteers or administrators at the local level more willing to engage in this kind of work? Because I'm thinking about the sort of really positive sort of pride stories coming out, particularly through the AFLW, which I think yeah. has brought the sort of AFL football community and, and leadership so far forward in recent years since that emerged. And I mean, there's been a pride round in the AFL-M for quite a while, but it feels like it's taken on much more resonance and significance through the AFLW. Is there more willingness to, to sort of do the work and engage with these issues and, and I suppose seek the assistance of the likes of Proud to Play to, to embed some of these values of inclusion within local clubs?
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, Especially at the local level, most of like our work, especially around trans inclusion. um, So we do a lot of work around trans and gender diverse young people. And a lot of clubs reach out for help and support because there are a lot of trans kids who are playing sports. um, And they need a little bit of help and assistance in in some of the the challenges that might come, for example, registration forms and things like that. But um, the the community level definitely um, some of the sports organisations they weren't necessarily always forthcoming in wanting to do this so sometimes we do have to advocate and try and get people over the line and get people to do stuff because many of the sports over the years have dragged their feet on this and they've been able to kind of get away with doing nothing whereas we're trying to hold people account, um, accountable now that's why it's great, the partnership with the Big Sport because they're kind of the peak organisation for all the sports and state sport organisations in Victoria so we can kind of work together to think and to try and get sports to actually do it and the ones who aren't doing anything um, or aren't doing maybe as much as they could be then we can kind of gently pressure them and try and work with them to to make these changes.
0: We're speaking with Dr Ryan Storr who's with Swinburne University and co-founder of Proud to Play about a a new um, project called Rainbow Roadmap together with Vic Sport and look it just sounds like like such a fabulous project and I mean the the kinds of straight away when I, I, I read more about what you were doing um ryan it made me think about you know recent media um discussions around language use for instance for, for commentators not to call aflw players girls but to call um call the players players and footballers and things like that rather than um you know and we do uh, i think you know hear boys and girls even for for grown men in aflm for instance and that sort of categorization um it seems like a small change, but uh, I think it wouldn't occur to a lot of people that uh, being more inclusive in just you know, conversation or, or um, categorisation like that, um, you know, it's, it's a small shift to make potentially.
4: Yeah. And l- language is a really important one because um, at the local level, especially in terms of studies on homophobia and biphobia, transphobia, it's mainly around language um, and offensive language and things like that in terms of homophobia in particular, but with the um, like gender-neutral language, so it benefits LGBT group, but it also helps drive gender equity, um, so many sports organisations are kind of embracing gender equity um, now in terms of some state government stipulations around the area. Um, but it can be difficult because uh, there's a lot of pushback to this. So I'll give you an example. We um, partnered with Vic, Vic Sport and Vic Health on a resolve to help um, community sports clubs in this area. And we suggested, because we work with rainbow families, so rainbow families are same sex parents, um, that so could be two lesbian mums, two gay dads, and trans parents. Um, and we kind of suggested um, that don't automatically use mum and dad, use pa- um, parents uh, when necessary. And <laughs> the Herald Sun did a story saying that we were telling everyone to um, not call anyone mum and dad and things, which is an outright lie. But that's chose the challenge around this area because it's kind of seen as woke and things like this but it's just basic language use so it benefits everybody Um, and that's why I think it'll be interesting to see how the ASLW goes because they have a couple of non-binary players now Mm. who go by they them pronouns so I think it will be interesting to um, see how that pans out and how people kind of change their language and moderate their language just to be mindful of all athletes um, I think that would be a really good thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if organisations do want to engage with this Rainbow Roadmap project, what does that involve and, and what does it look like?
4: Yeah. So the project is um, it's different for every organisation depending on if you're a large organisation. Um, we, are, for example, have a, a like modified Rainbow Roadmap for community sport clubs as well. And basically they they get in touch, they can sign up, and they would commit to making change in this area, and they would go through the five steps. The first phase is around an assessment, and then you've got education, so educating yourself on these issues, and then you do some community consultation, and then you go through to engagement and enactment. So the enactment phase is basically when you're enacting and living and breathing the values of diversity and inclusion, especially around LGBT athletes um, and employers, et cetera, Um, so yeah anybody who in an organisation or sports club who wants to kind of just make some changes to be inclusive of all people but LGBT people in particular um, please get in touch Um, have a look on our website and we can kind of help um with that journey.
0: Thank you so much, Ryan, and, and you um that people have somewhere to go now. I mean you did described in our conversation today that people don't know where to start. Well this is somewhere to start and the website is proudtoplay.org.au and all the best with the new project rainbow rainbow roadmap. Um, we'll speak to you again no doubt.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's the Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.